live. Well, it's, it's lovely to be with you. Um, it, it feels like a, a really kind of precious moment um, after kind of we, we've been talking and praying about um, the church here in Hammersmith for several years now. Um, and it's really exciting to be here with you for the first time. So it's, thank you for having me. Um, we're carrying on through uh, Galatians. Um, I guess you've um, uh, had three, three set, uh, sermons so far in the first couple of chapters. Uh, we're going to be the, the second half of chapter two this evening. Um, uh, and just to kind of highlight the big problem, um, I'll read in a second and then I'll pray. Um, but to highlight the big problem that Paul is getting into in these verses, um, it, it's a problem that's quite familiar to us in our society, in our, the, kind of li- the, the place where we live, in the city we live, in the time that we live. Um, it's the problem of identity. So who are we? What is it that makes us who we are? Um, I guess over the last few weeks, uh, Gus will have probably got fed up of answering questions like, uh, who are you? Tell us a bit about yourself as he started at a new school. Um, I'm sure Rob and Jenny have introduced themselves many times to lots of new parents. I'm sure you guys have, um, that have moved, those of you who moved to London recently have done that several times. You've got that kind of um, elevator pitch of who you are down to kind of a, a sharp 20 seconds. Um, I, and the, the problem that Paul is grappling with is, uh, is that the single most destructive thing that we can do is try and create our own identity. That is, that is the problem that, that Paul's wrestling with. Um, and uh, on behalf of the church in Galatia, um, the, the most destructive thing you can do for yourself and for those around you is to try and create your own identity. So watch out for that theme as we get into the verses. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, there's some um, uh, new people on the scene in these verses. Uh, we have Cephas or Kephas or Cephas, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Um, Cephas is uh, another name for Peter. He's one of the, the big names in the New Testament. Uh, very close to Jesus. He wrote some of the New Testament himself. He's a big feature in the first half of Acts. Uh, we, we have a mention of Barnabas, who's um, one of the other uh, early people in the church who's uh, known for encouraging people. Um, I, and Paul talks about an encounter with them. So let, let me read the verses uh, from verse 11 of Galatians chapter 2. If you've um, uh, got a Bible, um, we're about halfway through the second chapter of Galatians. Um, It's also in the the service sheets. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For uh, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with with the Gentiles. But when they came, he he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavour to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. 
For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. Let's pray. Loving Father God, we thank you for your words. We thank you that we can uh, read it and hear your voice through it. As uh, we hear your word now, we pray we would hear it with open ears and with hearts that are ready to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, earlier this week, uh, there was the Emmys Award Ceremony. Um, so it's every year there's a, a, the, one of these award ceremonies that honours people across various TV shows. So increasingly over the last few years, it's been the, the streaming services that really dominated those, uh, the, those award shows. Um, the, the kind of drama category this year was totally dominated by The Crown. So every two years, The Crown kind of takes over. I know kind of uh, Rob's a big fan now that he's a British citizen. Um, but the, the comedy side of, the, um, of the, the awards this year was dominated by a show made by Apple on Apple TV called Ted Lasso. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have, have watched this show or if any of you have. Um, I'm going to do my best not to have any spoilers because I got told off this morning when I, I mentioned a couple of bits that came a little bit too close to episodes people haven't watched yet. Um, I, I love it. Um, my, my wife, Sapphire, she, she works several evenings a week. Um, and so I, I tend to watch the latest episode just after she's gone to work, uh, the, the first evening after, after it comes out each week. Um, but the premise of the show is that a, a, an American football coach is recruited by a, a British football team. So a fictional English football team playing the English Premiership. Um, uh, and it's, uh, um, uh, he's, he's a, a man who's never, never played or watched or know anything about uh, real football before. He's only ever watched American football. Um, he was successful with a, a, um, a college team um, in the States, but he's brought in um, as a bit of a kind of a joke, basically, to this fictional team. Um, and gradually over the course of the first season, he um, wins around the fans and the players and the staff. Um, and, it, and it's been really successful. Um, and one of the reasons it's been successful is it's actually quite a, a hopeful show. Uh, a lot of comedy in the last few years has been quite dark, has been quite kind of um, tragic in some ways. Uh, and actually one of the reasons that it's been so successful has been the, 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 the kind of upbeat tempo. Um, it, it's pay, it pays uh, tribute to, to Love Actually, to Martin Scorsese. Um, it, it's very enjoyable to watch, lots of great one-liners. Um, in the, the second season though, which is partway through just now, one of the characters from the first season gets a new character arc. So we find out more about what he's like. Um, uh, and as it, it's been quite um, sad in some ways because this character in the first season was this sweet and innocent um, person who was kind of raised from nothing. And then as the second season goes on, he, he becomes captivated with his own reputation. He kind of spends his time on Twitter finding out what people say about him. Uh, he um, is just obsessed with what people think about who he is. And the thing that's really sad about it is that he has um, two faces. So to his boss and to the people he respects, he behaves uh, in a way that still looks like season one. But to the people he doesn't respect, the people he doesn't care about, 
uh, he's, he's rude, he's uh, destructive towards them, he, he treats them as, as less than himself. This, um, uh, this kind of idea that um, someone's insecurity can allow him to uh, treat different people in different ways, put a different face when he's dealing with different people, is something that we, I think we instinctively recognise. The, the, the idea that uh, all of us wrestle with who we are is, is so familiar, is so um, much part of our experience today. Who are we? Do we belong? Are we worth something? How do we know we're worth something? But one of the things that Paul touches on in these verses is that when we handle those questions, which are quite normal, in the wrong way, it's not just something that then begins to destroy ourselves, but it eats up those around us. Paul's spent the, the last few verses in Galatians um, opening up the fact that he has the same message as the other leaders in the early church. He has the same authority that they do. He's not saying anything different from what um, the, the, other, the other early disciples um, said. Paul's message they could have heard from, from Peter, from James, uh, from John. They could have heard it from Jesus the, himself. Um, but now we're taken into one of the most perilous moments in the early church. In the book of Acts, uh, there was a, a transition. Uh, the first half of the book looks at Cephas, at Peter, who um, is the, the man who's originally put in charge to, to lead the work that Jesus leaves behind. Um, he takes the gospel to Jerusalem um, and uh, proclaims what Jesus has done. And then as the, as the book of Acts goes on, we get, we get a new character coming in, Paul, who wrote this letter. Uh, and Paul partners with uh, Peter, Cephas, and the others, uh, and he begins to take the gospel, the news about Jesus, beyond Jerusalem, particularly to people who haven't come from a Jewish background. And at this early stage in the church's life, these two uh, major leaders, both of them have been put in place by Jesus, they, they clash over very different behaviour. What they teach is the same, Paul says. The authority they have is the same. But what about how they live in the light of what they know about Jesus? So, so Paul gives us a bit of an insight um, uh, and emphasises for the Galatians, don't, uh, don't divide the church by trying to appear righteous. This is, uh, this is the presenting problem uh, in these opening few verses. Cephas is trying to appear righteous. He's trying to look as if he's right with God. Uh, being righteous is one of the big themes of the Old Testament. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we touched on uh, those verses in Genesis earlier on. It's one of the reasons why uh, Rob included those verses from uh, those uh, questions and answers um, from the Catechism. Um, it's a question about being on the right side of God. Are you on the right side of the God who made the universe? That's what the question of righteousness is about. Should God, who has the, uh, harnesses the power of every black hole in the universe, who built planets, should he treat me as a criminal or should he treat me as a much-loved child? Should I receive the treatment that's earned by God's enemy or should I be treated as if I'm his family? The way God treats us depends on our status in front of him, on our standing before him. Uh, that's what the Bible means when it talks about righteousness. It's not a, a graded scale. It's not a to-do list. It is a status. It's not how good we are. It is the basis on which God deals with us. Am I a criminal or a child? Am I an enemy or a friend? 
a few years back, uh, the UK government flipped TV service from analog to digital. Um, those of you who are old enough may remember that TVs used to have tuners on them and, and those tuners actually had to do some tuning so that they would quite often be a round dial that you'd have to turn and you'd have to get someone to stand with the aerial um, in a particular position and then someone else would turn the tuner to try and get the channel uh, nice and sharp. Um, and as soon as you got it there, you couldn't move anything in the room because uh, you lost the signal again. Analog signals can have lots of different values and so you have to turn the tuner to get the, the precise, clear signal. Um, digital signals, on the other hand, the, the thing that the UK TV shows a switch to, are either on or off. They've only got two states. Um, they're either on or off. You get the signal or you don't. They're clear or they're not there at all. There's no fuzziness in between. And in Bible terms, righteousness is a digital signal, not an analogue signal. You are righteous or you're not. You can't be a bit more righteous than you were yesterday. You can't try to be more righteous. You are righteous or you're not. You're treated by God on the basis that either you're his enemy, because you've ignored him, or on the basis that you're his family. And that's the mistake that Cephas has fallen into. His problem is he's he is trying to appear righteous, as if by changing his behaviour slightly, he's levelled up in his righteousness. And Paul says that's out of tempo with the gospel that, that he and Cephas were teaching. Cephas, uh, at the start, was freely mixing with everyone in the church. Uh, he, he sat down and he had meals with uh, everyone, regardless of what background they'd come from, because these were people who trusted Jesus. And that's the pattern that we see in the early church, Acts 2 and 3 and, and all the way through. Believers share things together. They are one people. There's no distinction based on their background, based on who they are. In Acts 15, Cephas and James and the rest of the apostles, they agree that there's, there's no difference between how Jewish people are made right with God and how everybody else is. But Cephas, he gets freaked out when a group visit the church. Uh, these people are maintaining that there are some elements of the Jewish faith that, that are still necessary if you want to be part of God's family, some badges. They, they thought that the basis on which humans are declared right with God involved doing some of the things that the Old Testament taught. Cephas shrank back from, from his previously free association. He began to associate only with people who had the kind of outward marks of uh, being part of God's people, uh, people who'd been born as, as Jews and had some of the, the kind of the badges of that world. And on the surface of it, it looks like he's being cliquey. It looks like he's being involved in in-groups. Now, that's not great. Uh, no kind of group should uh, feel comfortable when there's, there's cliques and in-groups. But it's, it's surely not a terminal problem. Cephas shrinks back from mixing, but maybe it's only mealtimes. Maybe it's only uh, when they're eating together. Presumably he's still teaching about Jesus uh, and he's leading the church. But Paul confronts him and calls this what it is. He says it's hypocrisy. He tells Cephas he's behaving like an actor, playing out a part. Cephas thinks that he's withdrawing just to avoid some criticism from these incomers. But Paul tells him he's not just withdrawing, he is advancing a whole new theology. He's crossed a line. He's expecting others not just to live to a standard, but to live to a standard that Cephas knows he's been set free from himself. He expects them to be doing something that he's no longer on the hook for. The church is meant to be distinct from the world around about. It's made special by God. But Peter has taken a subset of the church and made it more special than the rest. 
He's saying that you don't have full citizenship in the church if you don't match up to a standard. And it's a standard that Cephas knows he's been set free from. He's attempting to appear righteous by just suggesting there's an aspect of the Old Testament that's still necessary. It's Jesus plus something else. He's appearing to others as if he's righteous. He appears as if he's living to a higher standard, something that others could live up to if they just tried. You can imagine people looking on and, and saying something like, well, I'm glad that he's keeping the old ways. It gives, gives the, the rest of us something to look up to. It's not unusual, uh, I suspect some of you have experienced the, the pain of being on the wrong side of an in-crowd, uh, whether it's at work or at school. It is painful. It's, it's really unpleasant. It's something that, that God isn't pleased about. But what's happening in this situation that, that Paul is confronting Cephas about is that multiplied by a million. He's, Cephas has taken God's new community, the church, and he's breaking it apart with his actor's face. Paul's challenging him because he's not just forming an in-crowd, he's um, actively breaking up the church. He's created something destructive. He's building a toxic culture. A culture where it's acceptable to demand a standard of others that, you are not, uh, that you're not on the, on the hook to meet to put unspoken barriers in place that tell people to belong to Jesus, to be treated as God's child, you have to trust Jesus and then this. You have to know the songs. You have to be able to handle theology as well as me. You have to be able to be from a particular middle-class background. You have to own your own house. You have to have a respectable job. You have to go to the right university. You have to be able to read. You have to be able to write. Culture shapes how we think it, it shapes what we think is acceptable, what we think is reasonable. And Cephas has created a culture that's toxic. He's walked from one table to another at dinner time. That's all he's done. But in doing that, he's made it legitimate to exclude genuine Christians because they don't meet a standard. And others begin to follow his lead. Um, if Cephas does it, they'll say, it must be okay. In fact, if Cephas is doing it, it must be the right thing to do. This other Christians follow along, uh, even people that are known for building up the church, like Barnabas. Cephas doesn't appear like a villain. He's forgotten, however, the gospel that he's preached himself. He's lost sight of the Jesus who's saved him. And that's why Paul confronts him. He's breaking apart the church because he's made a small decision to appear more righteous. He's forgotten that we are either righteous or we're not. And so a small stone shatters the windscreen of the church. What seemed small had cataclysmic effects. The correction that Cephas needs from Paul is fundamental truth. The big truth on which God's uh, church stands or falls. The leader who tries to appear righteous rather than relying on God to make us righteous risks breaking up the church. Well, so what? Uh, why is it important that this is in the Bible? Why do we need to hear about this? Um, there's three quick implications I want to touch on uh, before we move on to Paul's solution uh, that are worth bearing in mind, and particularly at, at an early stage of a, a church like, like here in Hammersmith. Firstly, that, that subtle doctrinal mistakes, subtle truth mistakes made by a leader can create a destructive culture. Uh, the problems that Paul was addressing were, were subtle, but they were perpetrated by the leader. 
uh, the leader's subtle mistakes, forgetting what, uh, what was true of him thanks to Jesus, created a culture in the church where it was okay for some to be accepted on the basis of Jesus, but not for others. It destroyed uh, a beautiful unity. It severed warm friendships. It was based on fear and shame and concern to appear right with God. Appearing mattered more than being. Looking righteous mattered more than being righteous. Belonging to the right group mattered more than belonging to Jesus. A subtle error by the leader came close to breaking up this church. And what leaders believe matter because what they believe often shapes the culture of what's acceptable in a church. So something that we need to watch out for in our own uh, church setting. It's one of the reasons why in IPC churches, uh, elders have to sign up not just to a moral standards, not just to prove that they can teach the Bible, but they have to sign up to specific true things that they agree to teach and uh, false things they uh, agree to oppose. Um, for Rob and I, if, if we start teaching something that's not in the Bible, um, that is different from what we've signed up to, we can be removed from leadership. Um, that's one of the reasons that, that um, things are set up that way. Um, what, what leaders believe often shapes the culture of how a church evolves. Believing the wrong thing can create a culture that's destructive. And the second implication on that is that, that broken church culture is solved by fixing the broken theology. So, so Paul challenges Cephas to get his beliefs right. Now, of course, uh, Cephas needs to change his behaviour. He needs to change what he's doing. It's not okay to carry on doing what he's doing. But his behaviour flowed out of believing something that was wrong. And so Paul challenges him to change what he believes. It's important for us to remember that cultural problems in a church stem from, what, uh, from believing what is not true or not believing what is true. Cultural problems are not just fixed by changing the structure of a church, although that often is necessary. They're changed by um, fixing what we believe when it's wrong. If something's wrong with our church culture, the first thing that we, we should ask is, what, what are we believing that we shouldn't? What are we not believing that we should? And um, third implication, uh, very quickly, is that, that superficial righteousness, appearing righteous, is something to be resisted. Um, it's easy to think that we'd spot this kind of situation a mile off, what was happening with Cephas. But appearing righteous is attractive. It makes us feel like we've got something to aim at. It's persuasive. It looks like something we'd want. I'd like to be like her. He seems to have it together. I don't know if I could live up to, to the standard that he lives to. I wonder if you ever heard something like this. If you come flyering, then, then your faith will take off. Read the Bible in a year and you'll grow extraordinarily in your faith. Get involved in a church plant. It's, it's new, it's exciting. It shows that your Christianity is alive and vibrant. That can be good advice. Those things are, are good things. It's great to invite people to church. It's wonderful to read the Bible every day. They are blessings, but they're not ways to become more righteous. In Paul's language here, we don't grow in righteousness. We can't be more right with God. It's possible for a good thing to become, in our heads, a way to try and impress God, to measure ourselves against other Christians. Um, in my first year at uni, I, I joined uh, every sports team going, uh, because in my head, I, I had to uh, have a minimum number of friends who weren't Christians, uh, because then I, that, that would show how my faith, uh, my faith was strong. 
I played basketball and corfball and squash and frisbee and all these sports. I went to every CU meeting. I went to every prayer meeting that my friends couldn't quite get up for because it was before 10 o'clock. I, I was at every pub night, even though I didn't really enjoy them. I, I was exhausted all the time because I was trying to do all the things that you're meant to do to be a Christian. Any Christianity that requires us to exclude other Christians rather than one which makes us more generous is nothing to do with this righteousness that, that Paul talks about. The sort of Christianity that's designed to make us appear more righteous rather than to trust Jesus is to be challenged. And we need wisdom to spot the difference. And we need humility to be able to hear from one another when, when that's what's happening. It's growing the church, uh, the church that we're in, making us more reliant on Jesus. Or is the growth shifting our dependence off of Christ onto something else? Well, having set up the problems that arise uh, from trying to appear righteous, Paul goes on to, to tell the Galatians, don't try to be righteous, just be righteous. He opens up the idea of, of how we are justified by God. Uh, the Bible has several big words that end in shun. Uh, this is one of the, the biggest, justification. Justification is Bible language for the, the foundation on which we're declared right with God. It's how we get righteousness, not the, the sham that, that Cephas is settled for. Being declared right with God, being justified, is the decision of a judge, if you like. After a trial, you can't be a little bit convicted of murder. You can't be a little bit acquitted. You are acquitted or you're not. You're convicted or you're not. And justification in the Bible is the same. You are justified by God or you're not. Uh, it happens only one way. Verse 16 is, is um, as Rob alluded to earlier, one of the, the pivotal verses of the Bible. It's one of the most important verses. But if you've been a Christian for a while, perhaps it's so familiar that we read it quickly and we move on. Verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to repeat that. Not, uh, not one of us, not you or I, not Cephas or Paul, is declared right with God by doing the things that God has told us to do. By trying hard to do all the commands of God. I wonder how shocked we are at that. No one gets to be right with God by trying hard to do what he commands. The only person who's declared right with God, in fact, Paul says, is the one who stakes their eternity on Jesus. Faith. It's one of the other big Bible words that's in these verses. And it means something like this. We are totally aware that anything that I possibly could show God is totally tainted because I've ignored him, I've rejected him. And so being made right with him, I'm, I know I'm totally dependent on him to do the righteousing. Not because I deserve his favour, but I hope that God will decide to do it. Faith means staking my eternity on Jesus, the one who's totally obedient to God, the one who has uh, both a perfectly obedient life to show God and a death which pays the penalty for, for my disobedience. I stake my eternity on Jesus. When God looks at me staking my eternity on Jesus, he declares that I'm on the right side of him. I'm seen as God's precious child and not his bitter enemy. Why? 
because God looks at me and he sees God, Jesus' perfect obedience. Getting right with God is utterly in God's gift to give. I don't deserve it, but he can choose to give it. And when I stake my eternity on Jesus, I don't bit by bit climb over the wall from being an enemy to being God's family. I'm launched over the wall on Jesus' back. God looks at me and he sees Jesus' obedience. God looks at me and sees Jesus' sacrifice. God looks at me and sees righteousness. God looks at me because, in that way because he looks at me and sees Jesus. And that's true of those who are born far away from God, those who have no family history in church. And it's true of those who were born into Christian families, who grew up coming to, to the church every week. There's um, several big implications in there, of course, um, but just to touch on one briefly. Um, being right with God is based solely on whom we trust. Being right with God is based solely on whom we trust. It's easy to get knocked, uh, knotted up in doctrinal uh, nuances and the, the kind of twists of the passage. But what matters in these verses is who we trust. A person is justified how? Through faith in Jesus. Not general faithfulness. Not non-specific trust in some vague force. Staking my eternity on a real person. It's crucial for you and I to, to grow in knowing Jesus because he is the one that we stake our eternity on. All of Christian life involves getting to know Jesus better, learning to love him more. We're declared God's family and not his enemy by staking our eternity on a real historical person, on Jesus. Sometimes uh, Christians talk about the gospel or church as kind of euphemisms for Jesus. We are right with God only if we stake our eternity specifically on Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who God sees when he looks at a Christian. If we rely on generic faithfulness, we are asking God to look at our good and our bad and to hope that his algorithm will, will bring us out in credit. But if we rely on Jesus, if we stake our eternity on him, we are asking God to look uh, at us and to see Jesus' obedience, to see Jesus' sacrifice, to see Jesus' resurrection. And that's the only way that any, uh, any human can ever be certain of being right with God. Healthy church planting is based on staking eternity on a real specific person, on Jesus. So in the last few verses then, uh, as we finish, uh, Paul rounds off by showing that the kind of resolution to the, the problem that Cephas has introduced. And, and he tells the Galatians this, unite the church by clinging to Christ. Again, if, if you're a Christian, you, you probably heard these verses several times before and it's easy to read them and miss how stark the image is for the believer for you and i paul says if we stake our eternity on jesus when jesus was crucified in that very moment i was too you are too as the nails went through jesus hands on the cross they went through mine too that piece of wood on a hill outside jerusalem that held Jesus' body as he died, held the body too of Steve, of Rob, of Jenny, of Paoping, of Ollie, of people who trust in Christ. In that moment that Jesus was crucified, I was too. Not in a vague, sort of empathetic, sort of symbolic way, but in a tangible way, a real way, a spiritual way. 
In that precise moment in history, I was crucified. That's what Paul says. And since that moment, every unit of life in me has Jesus' DNA and not mine. The moment that I stake my eternity on Jesus, I have a transfusion. Every molecule of hemoglobin, every molecule of oxygen in my body, that's Jesus' blood and Jesus' breath. It's not mine. I live right now at this very moment, surrounded by sin. It's all around me. It's often my own sin. But I am alive right now because Jesus is alive. And so whatever is true of Jesus is true of me. I died at the instant that Jesus did. And so because he overcame death, there's no doubt that the same is already true of me. This is a now thing and not just a future thing. Not just one day that I will come back to life, but right now, spiritually, I am alive forever and for certain because of Jesus. Paul uh, finishes with uh, echoes of John chapter 3. He says that God loved uh, and gave his own son that we could believe and live. And because God loved and gave, we are definite to uh, uh, be alive. Believers are, are treated by God on the basis of Jesus. And so how you and I are treated by God, enemy or family, is beyond certain. Because righteousness in Paul's writing here is a digital signal. Being declared right with God, friend and not enemy, depends on how God views Jesus. God treats Christians on the basis of Christ. God declares Christians righteous on the basis of Christ. God forgives Christians on the basis of Christ. God loved and gave us his perfectly obedient son, and so we can believe and live. Because Jesus lives. The church was was almost broken by Cephas trying to appear righteous, trying to make righteousness an analogue signal that you can tune into a bit better. But Paul shows us it's a digital channel, and when the signal is there, it is crystal clear. The church is united by clinging to Christ, because those who cling to Christ are as equal as they could ever be. We are treated equally by God, treated as his precious children, because every one of us is seen as Christ, seen on the basis of his righteousness, that is already secure, is already certain. Um, as Rob mentioned earlier on, I, I work for a tech company. I try to avoid writing code as much as possible, um, but, but I was doing some this week. Uh, this bit of code was designed to uh, take lots of data in and describe different groups of people. Um, so it kind of splits them into different groups and says the characteristics of group one is, are these, the characteristics of group two are this. Um, but I used a technique that, that kind of high-level hackers refer to as copy and paste. Um, and I messed it up. So I copied the block of code um, and forgot to change the parameters. So, so every group was described by exactly the same bit of code. There was no kind of variation. So every out, uh, output group looked identical. There was no distinction between them. Um, the, the data that came in was the same. The analysis was the same. And so the output was the same. The more we focus on uh, Christ, the more we love him and cling to him, the more united the church is. We are viewed by God with the same analysis. The input data is the same. The processing is the same. The input data is Christ's righteousness. The processing is how God treats us on that basis. And so there is no difference in the output for Christians. We look identical because we look like Christ. The church is broken by people who want to appear righteous, but is united when we stake our eternity on Jesus. 
One last implication, finally, as we, we finish. My spiritual weakness now is no measure of how spiritually alive I am. I wonder if you ever wake up some days and think that going to school or to work is just too hard because you just can't measure up to the standards that, that other people set of you. And Paul says to us, God looks at you and he sees Jesus. Not someone who's trying hard, he sees Jesus. Do you ever feel like you can't shake that one sin that's floored you again this week? Paul says the reality of your sin, and it's real and it's messy, it doesn't cancel out how certain, uh, how certainly alive you are in Christ. For in the days that you feel weak, that you're failing, that you're overwhelmed, on the days where growing as a Christian is slow, when Bible reading is hard, on the days when prayer is dry or evangelism feels pointless, on those days you've never been more spiritually alive because you died. You died 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. You came to life three days later. And when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. If you're trying to earn God's approval, if you haven't staked your eternity on, on Jesus, I can, I can only urge you to do that today. Um, speak to, to Rob, to myself, to someone else. If you're trying to impress God, if you think you can persuade him to like you, give up now. The best Christians in history couldn't do it. These are, are two of the, the biggest heroes of the early church and, and Cephas messed it up. He, he almost broke the early church by, by trying to, to do it himself. Stake your eternity on Jesus because God looks at you and in that instant, he credits you with every morsel of Jesus' performance, every piece of Jesus' obedience. In that instant, God declares you right with him forever and at once and for certain. Let's pray. Loving Father, this is good news. We know that we can't earn your approval. We know that we can't live up to the standards that we see in your word. And yet, uh, entirely because of your mercy and in your grace, you offer us a way to be declared right. Not to be uh, uh, given the chance to try a little bit harder uh, this week than last week, but to be declared right with you. Father, help us to love Jesus for the fact that in your mercy we can stake our eternity on him and we are declared right with you, alive forever and for certain. Father, help us to uh, hear this great promise and to cling on to Christ dearly because of it. In his name, amen. Let's uh, sing in response. Uh, I once was lost in darkest nights.